What I love in the business is when you take something that is genuinely a great piece of writing, you have a publisher who knows what they're doing and an agent who knows what they're doing and a publicity and marketing team, and it comes together and you sell a lot of copies of a book and you feel like the world's a little bit better because there are more people out there reading that book. So the thing that I'm wary of are people who veer on one side or the other too much, who think that their art is all that matters and it doesn't matter if they sell books. These are people who write literary novels, maybe other categories, or the people on the right who maybe have like tech people and business people who don't understand the art side of writing, who think, well, I should just get this thing self-published and I'll sell a million copies because a book is a book is a book. And that's not true. And so they look at it purely from a commerce perspective. Mm -hmm. There's something in between that is the reason why books will always, and physical books will always be with us for until we have a completely killer technology that obviates the need for a physical book. But right now we love the tactile-ness of it and also the place and sense of importance of what a book represents and the attempt to understand or to think more deeply about something. That if some author spent two years writing something that's 90,000 words long in this era of disposable content, that books really do have a place and people recognize that. Hey there, welcome back to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their career, and also to learn how to write the best manuscript possible so that they can hook their dream agent. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and certified developmental editor who is eager to help writers learn how to blend passion and business so that they can thrive in this industry and always find joy and fun along the way. I am really excited to bring you today's guest. This is someone who I've seen on various roundtable discussions hosted by Jane Friedman. I especially was interested in his responses on the DOJ Penguin Random House antitrust trial, as well as an equally engaging roundtable discussion about the paths to publishing and comparing traditional and small press. Both of these are incredibly insightful, and I will include the links to both videos in the show notes. And if you didn't get enough of my guest today, you can go ahead and learn more from him there. Today's guest is the brilliant literary agent Howard Yoon. Howard Yoon is a literary agent and principal of the Ross Yoon Agency, and he started as Gail's literary assistant, Gail being the other partner of the Ross Yoon Agency, Gail Ross, as Gail's literary assistant in 1992, and over the years has served as an editorial director, ghostwriter, foreign rights manager, book consultant, and book editor. Howard specializes in narrative nonfiction, history, memoir, science, current events, politics, and popular culture. He looks for original voices and original stories, but his favorite books are ones that combine both qualities. Howard specializes in helping authors find their place in the book world by bringing together his knowledge of the market with the innate skills of each client. He loves working with first-time authors as equally as he enjoys helping veteran writers with career decisions and new book ideas. Howard has been an adjunct professor at the Masters of Journalism program at Georgetown University, where he has won awards teaching a narrative nonfiction writing class. He was a former contributor to NPR.org's food blog, Kitchen Window, 
and he currently serves as the board chair of 826 DC, the DC chapter of a nonprofit funded by novelist Dave Eggers to support public school students in areas of creative writing, reading, and learning. Side note, I love 826. I have done various fundraisers with 826 Boston. If you're ever looking for a charity that really supports young writers, this is a fantastic nonprofit to support. Now back to the bio. Howard graduated from the University of Virginia with honors with a joint degree in religious studies and English literature, modern studies. He lives in the Mount Pleasant neighborhood of Washington, D.C. with his wife, Victoria, who is the owner of the nationally recognized Ice Cream Jubilee and their kids, Ian, Zoe, and Xander. You're in for a whirlwind of knowledge with Howard today. He is going to cover a variety of topics from insights on the Penguin Random House antitrust trial to what to include in a nonfiction book proposal and what specifically catches his attention in those proposals. If you are writing nonfiction and you don't have a notepad, pull it out right now because you're going to want to take notes. And without further ado, I bring you Howard Yoon. Hi, Howard. Thanks so much for joining me. This is going to be great. I have been binging interviews with Howard. He is a wealth of knowledge, so I'm really excited to pick your brain today. My pleasure, and I hope I can be helpful to your listeners. I'm sure you can. Of course, we'll talk about the manuscript wish list and the clients that you're looking for and the types of stories that you're looking for. But before that, I'd love to just introduce you to listeners and understand how you've come to be at the position that you're at. Because you're at Ross Ewan Agency. You are a principal literary agent there. And you've been in the business for quite some time now. So please just let us know. Let us know your beginnings and how you've got to be where you are. When I meet somebody for the first time, if I'm at a dinner party or a cocktail party or whatever, and they're always curious to find out what a literary agent does. And then question number two, I'm always asked this, which is, how did you get into this? Mm -hmm. And so that question is easy. I got in because I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't really want to be a lawyer, but there was... Back then in the 90s, you just thought, well, if I don't have anything else to do, I'll just get a law degree. Maybe some people still do that. But I had this literary side to me. I was an aspiring writer. I took a lot of fiction writing classes in college. I was an English and religious studies major. So I loved reading, writing, expressing. And I was the editor of a paper at my college that really inspired me. And I was lucky enough to find a job. I knew I didn't want to go straight into school. So I was lucky enough to find a job working for a media attorney who happened to be a literary agent. I thought that's pretty cool. That's you know, working in publishing books. And I had no idea that that was even an option. So my office here, you're talking to me right now and I'm in Washington, D.C. I knew I wanted to go to D.C. I didn't feel like I was ready for New York. D.C. felt more livable, more manageable. For my needs, it's proven to be true for the last 30 years. So I found this job and it was perfect because I could tell my parents who wanted me to be a lawyer that I was working in a law firm, but I was able to do stuff with books. And yeah. so for the next few years, I had applied to law school and deferred. I, I did it twice. And then I applied and was planning to go to Georgetown Night School, the law program there. And every year I was in this job, I loved it. I loved every aspect of it, except for the legal document part of it. And I thought, if this is the worst part of my job, then why do I want to go more into the lawyer aspect of it? So it just, I was able to make a living out of it. It was something that I never expected I'd get into. And I feel very fortunate that I've been able to do it for as long as I have. Absolutely. And I love that you're in D.C. It's fun to have a different location yeah. as well. It's interesting because I've talked to a lot of literary agents 
who are either they'll call themselves retired lawyers or, you know, they'll have some sort of lawyer is in their background. Of course, not all of them, but it does come up quite a bit. And I've always said, well, that's an advantage because you are trained to look at contracts, at least scrutinizing fine-tuned details in documents. Of course, that comes handy in negotiations when you're going into the book deals and figuring out what you're going to take for a negotiation. There's a lot more to a literary agent than just negotiating. So I'd love to hear the other question that you said was, what is a literary agent? My listeners, for the most part, when they're coming here, they do know what the answer is to that, but I don't know if they know the extent of it. Could you tell me a little more about your job and some of the areas that you especially love about it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that we need to differentiate what a fiction agent is supposed to be doing and what a nonfiction agent does. A lot of it is overlap. There's a lot of management of the client. There's a lot of interference that we have to do with the publishers. We're the advocates for our clients in every way, whether it's the book title, the book jacket, the deal itself, you know, maybe they're having issues with the type of edits. I've had clients who've complained about the copy editing, the quality of the copy editing. So we're always the bad cop to your good cop if you're my client. And that's universal for fiction and nonfiction. But I think that one of the things that I've learned that I feel like I'm good at, and that is a necessary thing if you're able to do it as an agent, that is the sort of developmental and creative side. So what do you want to write in terms of a book? I think with with fiction, there's a certain set of skills that are very important to figure out. If there's a manuscript that's not quite there, but you think it could be there, if you have the skills to make it happen, then you're going to be more successful as an agent. And I think my side as a nonfiction agent, being able to hear something comes in with a book proposal or some chapters. I actually had a conversation with somebody on Monday where she sent me a proposal last week. And I said, I love you. I love your profile. I love what you're trying to do here, but I don't think you're hitting this thing on the right notes. I think the execution is a little off. So we just talked through it. And I think that that stuff is so fun to do, being able to help develop something. So I think that Absolutely. The people who have the legal background and people who are able to understand the finer points of a contract, those skills are very valuable. But also you have to ask yourself, what is it that you're actually trying to sell to a publisher and how good is it? Is it the best thing that you could be writing right now? Is it the best thing that the market wants? Are you working with somebody who understands those things and can make that point come across to editors at these publishing houses? If you have a great idea, if you have good writing, if you have a good profile, then the deal falls into place pretty easily or more easily than not, I should say. So that's really important. So you want good product. It's like, you know, I love food and I love going to restaurants. And if you, it really comes down to how good is the food? You know, how good is the service? How good is the food? And you want to make sure that the, the thing that you create that you're trying to sell to somebody is the best thing you can put out. I love that, especially because with nonfiction, you are saying it's really important to understand the differences between a nonfiction and a fiction book and how you go about selling that book and creating that book. But I'm going to ask you some questions in a little bit about proposals, because I'm sure you have a wealth of knowledge about proposals. But something that you're saying here that really stood out to me is that you help your clients or even career authors work through ideas to make it the, what really is going to connect with a reader. So someone can have a strong platform and someone can even have strong writing skills. But if they're not really capturing the essence of the idea and how it's going to connect to readers, it won't perform well. So that I love to hear that you're involved with that process. How do you support your clients 
in that process when something is off? And what do you look for in clients in order to build a relationship that can move towards an ideal product? Yeah, it's tough because there's a formula that you have to figure out that's true for every aspiring writer who wants to be an author. And that formula, when applied, works on different levels. So the formula is the subject matter that you're writing about commercial enough for a big publisher. We call them the big five. It's Penguin Random House, Simon Schuster, HarperCollins, Macmillan, and Hachette. And those are conglomerates. They all have imprints within themselves. So is this idea supported enough? Do you have a good enough idea? Do you have a good enough profile where a big publisher thinks you have the goods to deliver on promoting the book? And then this third sort of intangible is, are, you know, is the writing good enough? Are you, are you good enough on the page? Now, for some big authors, that third problem is always solved by hiring a ghostwriter. Mm-hmm. So if you have a big celebrity book, oftentimes there's somebody in the background doing all the writing, and that's how things get done at that right. level. So sometimes that third issue is not as important. The formula works, but you may not be at that level. You may not have a national platform. You may not have a radio show. You may not be on TV. You may not have all these things that publishers want, which is really basically ready-made contacts that will get you immediate attention when your book comes out. You could come to me off the street and say, I want to write a book, and I could work with you and figure out the formula of what's the best book you could write for the biggest market you could reach. And we could maximize that potential and still not have the ability to sell to a big publisher because you're just not there. You know, Maybe your book is destined for a smaller publisher or a different market. But the formula is the same, which is that you should try to figure out a concept and an execution to your book that makes you the only person able to write it. Yes, and I think that's a big question. I worked as an editorial intern for a while. And one of the questions I constantly would ask myself if we were looking at nonfiction proposals would be, why is this substantial enough to be a book instead of a blog? I'm curious if you could give some feedback on that. Yeah, that's always a question. Is it a magazine? Is it a book? Nowadays, is it a podcast? Mm -hmm. It's a different thing. I think that it starts first with the understanding of what a book needs to present itself as. A book is $30 on average now. A lot of books now with the price of paper and inflation, you're looking at most books that are $32 or $34, mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy. Like on the one hand, you have something that has the potential to change your life overnight if you finish it. On the other hand, it's two months of Netflix or two movie tickets or food on your table or whatever. And it could be a terrible book. You could be really disappointed and spend that money and say, well, I just wasted my time when... I get a month of Netflix for 20 bucks or whatever, and I can watch, you know, 100 hours of movies of, you know, that's entertainment, right? right? So the question is, like, is the subject matter big enough to hold readers' attention and to make them want to spend 30 bucks to experience it? And if you can be honest with yourself and answer the, those questions and you say yes to that, then you should continue to pursue it. There are other times when I had somebody who contacted me through a client and he had written a book and it was, I don't know, 40 manuscript pages. Like it's not a book. It would be like a pamphlet if we were to try to print it and sell it on the the shelf. And that's where the business side of things come in. You have novellas, you have really short books, inspirational books and things. But for the most part, regular old fashioned hardcover books, 
need to be 60,000 words or more. And if you ask yourself, well, all, I got like 10,000 at best, then you've already answered the question, is it a book? It's not a book. If you feel like, oh my gosh, there's so much I could be writing about, these characters really just come alive. Or in some cases, we have clients who are journalists or writers who are doing this in micro for a magazine or something. And they come to me and they say, I've been working on this and there's just so much more that I got that my editor cut for the magazine piece, but I've got all this stuff on the cutting room floor and this thing could fill up a whole book. You know, that answers the question, I think, too. Absolutely. And I'm going to move into your manuscript wish list in a second, but I love what you're seeing here. And I'm wondering if you can even show us an example. I ask every agent, what are three books that you yeah. represent that you'd like to share that I'm going to share, of course, on social media and, and include them in the social content. I see them back there on your bookshelf yeah. already. So I love them. Yeah. You gave me The Great Air Race. One right here. Yeah. yeah. So you have The Great Air Race. And there's also The Mamas, What I Learned About Kids, Class, That's and Raised for Moms Not Like Me. Yeah. Yeah. And also you have Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon, which recently was published. I'm curious, out of those three examples, when they came to you from your clients, how did you know all right, we have a book here. This is going to be bigger than a podcast. This is going to be bigger than a TV show. We have, well, it could be adapted to a TV show. Maybe yeah, I, exactly. How did you know we have something here? Or in any of those ideas, did you have to work at it to build into a book idea that could withhold yeah. 60 Yeah, I'll tell questions? you all three really quickly. And sure. I think it'll be informative for people. It's funny because this book, The Great Race, this is an example. That color was something that we went back and forth on because we had different choices of color. And as an agent, I had to advocate for my, client and make sure that he was comfortable with the color choice. I have my own opinions, but my clients have very different tastes. And so you know, we all agreed on that one. I love that color personally. I think it stands out. But John came to me years ago and he said, hey, he was an aviator, so he had a pilot's license. He said, hey, there was this cross-country trip in 1919 with these former World War I pilots. And it was really just a case to be made for the U.S. Postal Service to deliver mail. But it was incredible. These were pioneers who were in biplanes and there were an alarming number of deaths, casualties of these pilots because there was no such thing as aviation science. They didn't know that if you went over a mountain in cold weather that it, you wouldn't get lift because the oh, air wow. was different and they'd hit the mountain. And just the time period and the sort of the wildness of the story, when you hear something like that, you say, wow, that's incredible. That sounds like a great book because it's basically a race book, but it's life or death. People are literally dying and crashing, and it represents this moment of time in American history. It checked all those boxes. So that's a very good example of pure history. Helena's book, The Mamas, Helena writes to the Washington Post, and she lives here. I've worked on her two previous books. I've worked with her for almost 15 years. And in that time, she's gotten married and she's had kids. And mm -hmm. she lives in this neighborhood in D.C. that's gentrified. And she was talking to me about this mother's group, support group. She was the only black woman in the group. And how interesting it was, all these issues of race and motherhood came into a conversation here or not, mm -hmm. it was awkward. And she thought that maybe that should be a book. And I was like, absolutely. It touches on all these different things that we're dealing with right now in our culture. People are asking her to march in protest of the George Floyd killing. And it was hard for her because she said, you know, I'm the only black person in this group. I live this stuff every day. You can protest and leave it behind. I live with it. So she wasn't comfortable with that. But those are issues that to be able to talk about it really helps 
people on either side of the race issue understand what's at play here. So I love that concept. And so she wrote that book. And then the Elizabeth Taylor thing was really interesting because Kate Browers, and this is her, so her fifth book. She's written a lot of books in the past. She did this book called The Residence, which was a number one New York Times bestseller. It's going to be a Shonda Rhimes show on Netflix. And she had been researching the advocacy of Elizabeth Taylor as an AIDS activist in D.C. And she lives in D.C. as well. So we were talking about that. And then eventually we got in touch with the estate for Elizabeth Taylor. And they were looking for somebody to help write the definitive authorized biography. That was a case where their interest merged with our interest and Kate had got access to the entire Elizabeth Taylor archive. So letters with Richard Burton that nobody had read before and photos and stuff like that. So that was the genesis of that project. They're all, these are three very different books that had three different origin stories. The thing that they have in common is that they require a conversation with somebody, the agent who understands the market who understands how to sort of cultivate the creative part of the idea and who can shepherd that through. And that's what a good agent can do. Absolutely. And wonderful explanation of all three examples. I love that you zipped through those in very clear and engaging ways. One thing that I really like about and appreciate about nonfiction books is the variety of topics that a nonfiction book can offer. All three of those are so different. You're always looking for more ways to grow our intelligence, grow our understanding of people, cultures, all of these important things. And sometimes talking to others, we can feel intimidated if we don't feel like we're up to par with our research or understanding of that. And I like that the nonfiction books give you an opportunity to sit down and do that in a non-intrusive situation where you can feel like you can absorb it on your own time and then talk about it. So that's great. Yeah. There's not a day that goes by where I don't have a client or somebody ask me, oh, I just read this book. Do you know this book? And oftentimes I'm like, sorry. And I try to be as well-read as possible, mm -hmm. but there's just so many books out there. And that's the beauty of the being in the business is that there are so many good books. There are so many good writers. And I'm not embarrassed by saying oh, I didn't read that book because in my line of work as a nonfiction agent, I'm a generalist and I know okay. a, a little bit about a lot of things. And so it's really hard to feel like you're caught up with everything. You can never be caught up. But you can go deep in certain topics, which is yeah, really cool yeah, as well. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So let's talk about your manuscript wish list. You've just given us three great examples. What is on your manuscript wish list and why are you attracted to these specific topics within the nonfiction realm? Well, I think that nonfiction is more appealing to me because there are variables that are under control and are being my client and myself. And that fiction can be very subjective. And you could have one editor say, I didn't think the writing was that good. And another editor say, this is the best thing I've read in all year. And we get that with nonfiction too sometimes, but mm -hmm. fiction also is more of a heartfelt endeavor. I think like you fall in love with a novel and you want to sell it. And if people don't share the love, then it hurts more. The nonfiction side, you, it's more of a calculated decision that you make of like, I think I can sell this. I know I can sell this. It's just a question of how much can I sell it for sort of thing. So the things that I'm drawn to, they're like maybe layers of needs or layers of desire here. One is working with professionals. I, if you don't know how to write a cover letter, if you don't know how to address me in an email, if you copy me along with a hundred other agents in an email and I can see mm -hmm. all their email addresses and you haven't taken the time to like write me, you know, that, that, that's not professional, I think. 
Right. These are all, I've been in the business long enough to know, like, these are all potential indicators of other issues that will happen later on. And you want to work with grownups, you want to work with professionals. The other thing that over time I think I've realized is that I want to work with people who know who they are. I think in order to write a really good book, you have to have a sense of who you are as a writer, who you are as a person. What's interesting is that I've worked on a couple of memoirs in the last five years or so where the people have been writing and in the process of writing about some stuff that was very heavy for them, it was difficult, but they were able to get through it because they had a strong sense of who they were now. That hasn't always been the case. And I think that you want people, it is, I say this in a lot of interviews that I have this Pareto principle of 80-20, which is that no matter how hard you try, 80% of your work is due to 20% of your clients. So you have certain clients who are very needy or demanding, or for whatever reason, those clients take up most of your time. And what you want to try to do is avoid some of those that take up the 80% in ways that are not enjoyable. Right. And not fulfilling. So, right, right. So I think that there isn't a single editor at a single publishing house who doesn't want an original voice. They mm -hmm. want somebody who has something new to say, has a new story to tell, or has a new way of telling it. If you can do all of them at once, that's incredible. But if you have a singularly unique experience that you can talk about, publishers will want that. If you have a singularly unique way of writing and your writing style is fresh and unlike any other, publishers will gravitate towards that. So it's the allure of the new and the fresh and different. I think that the other thing publishers always want is one foot in the familiar and one foot in something completely out there. This author reminds me of this category or this writer, but then they're doing something that bends that expectation and offers you something different. Do you have an example of something that's done that recently? Uh, that's a good question. Recently, that's tough. I'm going to have to pass on that. I'm going to think about it. as Yeah, as think about going. it. I'll, I'll come up with something. You think you. about it. Yeah, we'll come back yeah. to it if you want. Something that you've been talking about here, and of course, you clearly understand the business side of this. And I also like that you've pulled attention to that writers need to know who they are because that helps pull in passion as well. I was watching you on a panel with Jane Friedman going over the Penguin Random House trial, and it came up in discussion at some point that publishing isn't just art or just commerce. It's a blend yeah. of both of them. Publishing is art and business. Could you speak to that a little bit more so we can understand that? And how do you support clients in that understanding so that they have an advantage when they go into the business? Yeah, I made this point, I think near the end of that panel, where one of the reasons why I love this business and that I will never leave the business is that it has this really unusual blend of merging between art and commerce. And it's like a Venn diagram. We want to produce art. Most of us came into this business because we fell in love with books, fell in love with storytelling in some way. But we also realized, you know, you need a job, you need to pay your bills. And those artistic endeavors need to make money. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's hard because there isn't any one set formula for why this book works and this one doesn't. I've been in the business long enough to have seen what books came out right before Princess Diana was killed, right before 9-11, right before the financial crash in 08. There are moments where you lose the lottery. It's just a random thing and you aren't able to push your book the way you thought you would because the universe decided it didn't want you to. There's randomness there. But there's also this idea of selling you something really smart in a smart way. What I love in the business is when you take something that is genuinely a great piece of writing, you have a publisher who knows what they're doing and an agent who knows what they're doing and a publicity and marketing team, and it comes together and you sell a lot of copies of a book. 
and you feel like the world's a little bit better because there are more people out there reading that book. So the thing that I'm wary of are people who veer on one side or the other too much, who think that their art is all that matters and it doesn't matter if they sell books. These are people who write literary novels, maybe other categories, or the people on the right who maybe have like tech people and business people who don't understand the art side of writing, who think, well, I should just get this thing self-published and I'll sell a million copies because a book is a book is a book. And that's not true. And so they look at it purely from a commerce perspective. Mm -hmm. There's something in between that is the reason why books will always, and physical books will always be with us for until we have a completely killer technology that obviates the need for a physical book. But right now we love the tactile-ness of it and also the place and sense of importance of what a book represents. The attempt to understand or to think more deeply about something that if some author spent two years writing something that's 90,000 words long, that in this era of disposable content, that books really do have a place and people recognize that. And I agree with you completely about the tactile part. You do want to hold a book. I joke at myself because when I was little, Harry Potter is one of my all-time favorite series. And I was flying to see my grandma for the release of the fifth book. And I was convinced that I was going to read all four books in the week before it was released and put them in my suitcase. Yeah. I was flying alone and my dad did not know that I yeah. did that. So, of course, they went to weigh my suitcase and all these books were in there. And I insisted that we had to pay the $50. Yeah. <laughs> so good. But yeah, I mean, but you have to hold it, you know, and it's like, yes, of course, ebook sales are huge. And audiobook is continually rising in sales. But I do think that that tactile part of holding the book, it's special. It's a relationship. Yeah. Um, well, audiobooks are interesting because they've grown every year and they're a huge part of every book launch now. And you can't sell a book to a major publisher without also selling the audio rights. And I think that's a different experience. I think that ebooks are best when conveying information to mm -hmm. you, but audiobooks works almost as close to the tactile book because of the intimacy you get because you got these things in your ear and you've got an, a beautiful narrator and it feels more connected. Especially when you have an awesome narrator. I swear by audiobooks. If I didn't have audiobooks, I'm reading a lot for work in the day. So if I didn't have audiobooks, then I wouldn't get to stay up to date as much as I would like. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Something else that is relative to what we've been talking about is with the publishers and trying to figure out where books are placed is that publishers although they've done better, they haven't done, at least these big five publishers, haven't done an amazing job at establishing a relationship with the reader. And that in comparison to something like Amazon, that maybe has done a better job at establishing a relationship with the reader, which could impact sales. So I'm curious your thoughts on that. And if you think that they are improving with that or anything, they're trying to improve that, because obviously connecting to the reader would be huge in yeah. return on investment. Well, we're always going to have that problem. It's getting easier now, but the problem is that you have publishers who are selling their product to bookstores and the bookstores have the relationships with the consumers. The publishers don't. And I think that you could look on the spine of any of your favorite books and you might recognize some of the imprints that are on there, but you won't know. You probably won't be able to tell the difference. I mean, maybe when you see the Penguin, you recognize Penguin because that's, I think it's one of the top 15 brands in the country, recognizable brands, but it's hard to differentiate because you just don't know. And frankly, a lot of the imprints overlap in terms of what they're trying to sell to the consumer, but the publishers don't have a relationship. And that's been the problem since the beginning. There's this crazy rule that came about during the depression that 
bookstores can return their books to publishers and get credit for them. So if you're a mom and pop bookstore and you can carry a couple thousand titles at once that you can display, you need to be able to monetize that shelf space and you need to be able to make money off of the things that you're putting up there. It's no different than a grocery store. If a grocery store and you put up a cereal and it never sells, then you're going to replace it with Frosted Flakes or whatever, right? Right. So it's just, that's the business of it. But the crazy thing is the bookstore can return it to the publisher and get a full credit for it. And then they order some new books. And so the publishers, they have to evaluate and push out talent, but they're not the ones creating the bond with the consumer. And, and up until recently, it was hard for them to understand the sort of data collection of consumer tastes. They've gotten a lot smarter about that now. They're able yeah. to gather that and understand reader preferences and stuff like that. But this is where Amazon has an advantage of they're in everyone's phone. I don't have a random house app where I'm shopping for my sure. random books, you know, but Amazon knows everything that I like and they can figure out the algorithm for recommending something or whatever. So it's tricky. That's part of the whole alchemy of publishing, which is that the really good publishers have an instinct and a gut feel for what the market's going to do. And so they acquire a book and they don't need to do a lot of hard data research to know that this thing is going to sell. They just know it through experience, like this is going to sell. At the same time, it rewards publishers for playing it safe and doing books like Matthew Perry's memoir. It sold more than 100,000 copies in the first week. And that book is a no-brainer. Michelle Obama's book is a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. These are all important books. And Matthew Perry's book is really focuses on his addiction. And there, mm -hmm. you know, another big celebrity memoir is Matthew McConaughey's book, yep. one of the biggest books in the last few years. So you have these safer bets where publishers are willing to spend a lot of money on something that's a sure thing because they're going to recoup those costs. This is kind of how the system works. It's this idea of they know that Michelle Obama is going to publish a book and that's going to be a bestseller. Yeah. So one last week. Right. And it's pretty predictable that that's going to be the case. So the income that they make based on or the sales that they make based on that book can allow them an opportunity to take chances on a book that they like but don't know if it's going to perform as well. Do you think that that's a good system? And how is how do you I guess, approach all of that when you're going to pitch your stories that you're taking from your client work to market. How do you use that to your advantage? <laughs> I'm fumbling yeah. a little bit. There you go. <laughs> no, I, I get it. I think, I think what's changed in the many years that I've been in the business is that the idea of underwriting everybody else and the ability for a publisher to take a chance on some lesser known author is unfortunately more rare, rarer an occurrence now. But mm -hmm. even the books that they're not spending as much money on, there are certain guarantees to those acquisitions. And so maybe you take a flyer on some novelist and you spend very little money on it, but it takes a savvy publisher to be able to stomach those risks because every acquisition needs to be strategic in the sense that they, they think they're going to make money on all of them. Mm -hmm. So it's not easy. I'm looking at, I just looked up NPD, which is the book scan sales for Michelle Obama. Mm -hmm. So year to date, this is not close to the accurate number. This book scan covers the reported sales for certain outlets, but it doesn't report everything. So depending on the category, it could be wildly off. It could be 80% mm -hmm. of the actual sales or sometimes less than that. So Michelle Obama sold 241 
12,446 copies of her book and it came out three weeks ago. She sold 96,000 copies last week. Huge numbers. You cannot find anything that gets those numbers. And that's because Michelle Obama is Michelle Obama. There's only one of her. Exactly. And she's coming off of Becoming as well, which we already knew wasn't this amazing yes. memoir. I'm looking at those numbers and the hardcover numbers for Becoming on Bookscanner, over 5 million. It is a great book. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. that's that's a $32.50 book. That's $32.50. And it's yeah. selling that many copies at that price. Yeah. That's a big deal. When you're looking at all of this, again, it speaks to the importance of blending business and passion. Something that I think there's a lot of, I guess people were worried about the Penguin Random House trial. I'll say that, right? So there's a lot of apprehension around that. In case listeners don't know, the government did overturn it. So we don't know who Simon and Schuster is going to be sold to yet, right? That's still up in the air. I'm curious if you could just really quickly summarize what that trial was and why it was important for agents, authors, and really anyone in the publishing industry to be aware of. And what your thoughts are on who Simon Schuster might be sold to in the future and how that will impact things. Boy, those are tough questions. The lawsuit, so there was an attempted acquisition from Penguin Random House, which is the world's largest publisher, to acquire Simon Schuster because Simon Schuster was on the selling block that Paramount, its parent corporation, wanted to get rid of it. One of the problems with publishing is that we can make money for you, but we're not Tesla. We're not mm -hmm. Apple. We're not going to make 30, 40, 50% growth year over year. We are a media business. Media companies are hard to grow. You reach sort of limits and capacity and stuff like that. And also, as this trial revealed unintentionally, a lot of people in the business are doing things through intuition and gut and not because they've test marketed something and they roll it out in beta and then they improve and revise and then they, they release it again. There's just a lot of intuitive business decision-making. And also that has to do with the price they're willing to pay for books. So Simon Schuster is looking for a new owner. Penguin Random House, HarperCollins was maybe in the running. Penguin Random House made a much better offer. And then the DOJ intervened. And I actually just used this word today on my Slack channel. They were trying to prevent what's called a monopsony, which is a single buyer, not a single seller. So monopoly is a single seller. When you have a monopoly on something and you're the only one who sells pineapples on the street and you can sell a pineapple for a hundred bucks because nobody else is around to sell them. But this is the opposite. If there's only a single buyer. So if I, as an agent, I'm trying to sell and Simon Schuster is now owned by Penguin Random House. The argument was that it would hurt a certain level of author. This is where I have an issue with the trial because they made this sort of arbitrary monetary mark of $250,000. So Authors who make an advance of $250,000 or more are considered potential bestsellers. And so they're the ones who are going to get hurt by this merger, mm -hmm. by the creation of this monopsony. Mm -hmm. So it ended up the judge ruled in favor of the DOJ. Simon & Schuster now doesn't have a suitor anymore, so they're looking. And I was actually talking to somebody at Simon & Schuster yesterday about this, and there are rumors, but nothing substantiated. There was always this concern that maybe it would end up in private equity hands and that they would maybe take things apart as private equity loves to do. But again, you're looking at a very lean animal with not that much fat. So there's not a lot to take apart. And so there are conversations in publishing. They don't think that private equity is going to go in. That's not as viable an option. Okay. So we don't know. And for now, they're just still functioning the way they're supposed to. And Paramount is underwriting. They're still buying books. Do you think there's a chance that they won't be sold to anyone then? I think they have to. Okay. 
Or, yeah, I think it's just a matter of time. But we've heard stuff about Macmillan and Hachette and these other parts of the big five who are rumored to be on the sale block. Let's talk about the big five. One thing that I was always advised in, in that especially if you're a debut author, ideally you're going to be sold to a big five publisher. And I think that some writers might not even know who the big five are. You've stated them already, who they are. Why is it important that these big five exist? And when do you know if it's better to go to a big five publisher or a smaller publisher? The easiest answer to that question, one of the answers, which is the easiest to answer, is you don't have a choice. So mm -hmm. you've tried all the big five imprints. They've all said no. You go to the next level, which is a smaller press. And I think that there are always pros and cons to whatever decision you make with your publisher. But the one thing that you can guarantee if you go with the big five is that the resources to make your book a big hit are in place in better ways than a smaller publisher. How so? That's not to say that a smaller publisher can't get a big hit out there. But when you think about what a book is, all these things behind me, and we've talked about this, the physical sort of the talisman sort of thing of a physical book, you're talking about something that has to get printed with paper in a printing warehouse, then shipped to another warehouse by truck, then shipped to these bookstores. There has to be an interface with the accounts to all the bookstores. Well, it's not just Amazon. Amazon controls a, a, the lion's share of book selling now, but independent bookstores wield a lot of power in this country. The logistics game of getting your book out there, if your book does well, you are in a better place if you're with a big five publisher. So resources are, are much deeper. And then there's the obvious thing of like, do you need money if you're writing nonfiction or fiction and you have a great product and you know a lot of people are going to want it, these big five have deeper pockets and they will spend multiples of what a smaller publisher can afford. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. just the, you know, the, that's the way the metrics work. Is that? But, yeah. oh, so I was say, but not all of that is spent on marketing, right? Because sometimes I think people get the false idea that just because you go to a big publisher, they're going to give you a publicist. And that isn't always the case. Yeah, no, what I'm saying is that your advance, I mean, if, if you have the potential to sell your book and let's say every publisher in the world wants to buy it and you look at the advance level of what a big five imprint could offer you versus a small press or a regional press, you're talking about either selling the book for almost zero money or maybe 5,000 bucks to something that could be whatever, many multiples of that. I talk about the publishing business being the little runt of the media entertainment industry. Movie makers like to think of themselves as the intersection of art and commerce as well. TV, streaming shows, things like that. Everyone wants to be artistic. They also know they have to sell stuff. And I think that there is this recognition that you can try to shoestring your own independent movie or you can get Universal or HBO to back it. And it's the difference between a budget of $100,000 or $10 million or $100 million. Right. I think the analogy fits because the operating budgets of these places are just on a different level than a small press. But I want to disabuse everybody of the notion that if you sell your book for a million dollars or $100,000 to a big five publisher, that doesn't mean they're going to put in the necessary marketing publicity for your book. I've seen this happen before. It's a little different with novels because novels have to be submitted most of the time in full form. So the publisher knows what they're getting. But in terms of nonfiction, a publisher will buy something of a book proposal and then you go off and write it and they give you some money up front. You finish the book, they give you more money when you finish and they give you more money when the book gets published. So they spread it out. But there are times when they will potentially overspend, irrationally overspend 
and then you deliver a manuscript under Wells mm. and they realize, oh my God, this is not the book that we thought we were going to get. Or the market shifted. We're not going to, people have moved on. They're not going to want to read the story. It doesn't make business sense, but there will be the sense of we're going to let this one go and we're not going to push as much on this one because there's no amount of marketing that we can do that's going to convince people to buy this book. Sometimes yeah. it's just bad luck yeah. with the market shifting like that. Something will shift or maybe you struggled and you didn't write a very good manuscript. You know, that's interesting because nonfiction is an exception where you write the book after you write the book proposal. So the book proposal is crucial yeah. to getting a book deal. I'm curious, when you're looking at a book proposal, when people query you with these book proposals, what are the top things that you're looking at and what helps you decide if this book proposal is worth investing time and energy in or not? I want to say something just to go back the yep. counterpoint to what I just said. It works the other way too. You could sell a book based on a proposal and over deliver. Mm -hmm. People would say, oh my God, Abigail's manuscript is so good. It's so funny. It's so readable. She really nailed it. And we're going to triple the marketing budget because we oh, think wow. this is the horse to back. This will be our lead for the fall or the spring of 23. And the sales staff gets excited. Everyone's buzzing about it. That happens too. And then once they see that happen, all eyes and attention and focus go on that and it'll make a difference because they will push harder on their media contacts to get you out there. Yeah. It's possible to benefit from the other side of it. Over Absolutely. And this is interesting too, because when you're thinking about comps are still important when it comes to nonfiction books. So something like Atomic Habits, which is this monster of a book, like major success, there are various titles that are probably pitching similar ideas to something like Atomic Habits. But the combination, again, of the talent and the idea is the marriage of what makes something a horse yeah. worth backing, right? Uh, the talent, the idea, the timing. He got that book in right as the pandemic hit all of us and we were all looking for self-improvement. J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy after Trump won. Uh, right. The book just started selling and selling and selling because a lot of voters wanted to figure out what did we miss here? What did we underestimate? You can hit the lottery in that sense. To go back to your book proposal question, there are some core components to a book proposal that you should keep in mind. One is what's the idea? How good is the idea? How excited can you make me feel about it? Do I understand or can you make the case that there's a market for it? And I did a panel many, many years ago with a guy who was a kidney specialist and he told the audience that this book is for everyone because everyone has kidneys and that's not convincing. That's not going to make everyone run out and buy the book. You have to convince me or maybe it's so self-evident. I don't need to be convinced. Third thing is you have to convince me that you're the right person for this. And if you can think of a hundred other people or 10 other people who could do the book just as well, or maybe better, then you've got to tweak your concept. The concept isn't ironclad. Mm -hmm. And then the other aspect of the book proposal that's really important is the chapter structure. Is this really a book? Does it flow like a book? Does it feel like a book? And the metaphor I always use is it's a blueprint for a house. If I'm an architect and I look at a blueprint of a house, I can say, this is beautiful. This flows, the rooms work together, and this feels solid. If we have somebody who hasn't really thoughtfully put together a chapter structure, it's going to feel like weird additions to the house or there's no flow or rooms don't have any doors. And, you know, chapter one doesn't flow to chapter two and it's going to be all janky. And you're going to feel that. And I think that what I like to see is some clarity of thought from the author that they know how to get the reader through 
a book through the blueprint of this outline. Do you think when you're focusing on that chapter flow, do nonfiction books still work towards a climax or is that not something that happens in nonfiction books? It depends on the kind of book. So if okay. it's a memoir, yeah, maybe if it's a narrative, if it's pure narrative, yes. I did this book, Operation Pineapple Express, which is this attempt to get as many Afghans out last August during the fall of Kabul. Yeah. And it culminated in the bombing of Abbey Gate, which we all know about. And so that was a literal sort of ticking clock or, you know, bomb that was about to go off. So it worked towards that. So you build towards that, but that's a natural because that's a narrative. If there isn't a climax, there, the parts need to fit together. There needs to be like, why is chapter five, chapter five? Why isn't it chapter one? Like, are you getting readers through an experience of this? Does it flow? If they're standalone and disjointed, then it's a collection of essays. That's different. And oftentimes those are less profitable because people love continuity and they love singular experiences. That's really well said. Do you have any resources that you'd recommend authors research a little bit more in order to understand nonfiction book proposals? Is there anything out there that you'd recommend? I don't know. I don't have any standards for what people have to write in a proposal. And mm -hmm. I don't send out things in a template because every project is different. I feel like you need to make the case for your book idea, make the case for yourself as the author, and demonstrate two more things. One, that this is clearly a book. It has an order and a flow to it. You can't have a book that's two chapters. You could have a book that's 50 chapters, but I want to know why you think it should be 50. And then within that proposal, you have to demonstrate the, the writing ability. So that's the other metaphor I use. The chapter outline is the blueprint for the house you want to build. The writing in the proposal proves that you have the carpentry skills, that you are a craftsman and you can put it together. That's great. We are at the top of the hour, so I do want to head into yeah. the lightning three. I could pick your brain, I think, for days, but <laughs> maybe in the future we can talk again. Yeah, I think that you've shared so many great things here. At the end of every podcast, I do like to do a lightning three where I ask you three questions and you answer them in one sentence. So. My first question for you is based on the market. One of the important things about a book proposal is that they can defend that there is a market for the book idea. Yep. And you gave an example about kidneys that everyone has a kidney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that wasn't an acceptable way of defending that there is a market. I'm curious if you could give an example of something that does defend that there is a market for the audience. Less is more in the answer to this question because you have people who belong to special interest groups who are willing to pay 30 bucks to go deeper into the subject matter that they've already expressed an interest in. So you've got to figure out who are those core readers. The kidney guy overshot his market. The reality is if you sell 20 or 30 or 40,000 copies of your book in a country that has 330 million people, it's a success. So who are those 30,000 people? Mm -hmm. And those are in some sort of special group that your book topic caters to. Yes. Second question, going back to your manuscript wish list, something with nonfiction books that I've seen common is that sometimes agents or readers in general, they don't know that they want that book idea until that book idea is pitched yeah. to them. So I'm, I'm curious if, if that sticks with you. And on top of that, is there any certain topic or an idea or is there any comp or something that you have really loved and you would love to see more of in your inbox? So the second part of that, I love practical books mm -hmm. by experts. 
feel like the world could use more books to help them get through what we're experiencing right now, which is a really hard time on an individual and family level and societal level in this post-COVID weird economic time. So I'm looking for authors who have an expertise who can unlock certain problems. So mm -hmm. I have a proposal like that by a psychiatrist that I'm going to send out next month that I'm very excited mm -hmm. about. Mm. That does and that thing. Do you yeah. find that because so much is dependent on the market and time sensitive with something like this, do nonfiction books, is the publishing schedule usually moved up or can they be published faster than a traditional fiction book? They can be, but a lot of this area, this subject matter is not going to go away. Mm -hmm. It may get worse before it gets better. We in publishing work at a snail's pace. And it's really shocking to other people, like how slow things take, how long things take. At the same time, I have clients who are really anxious about something. Oh, we're going to lose the market. We're going to lose the market. And it never works out that way. Like the mm. market will always be there. And if it takes another six months for a book to get out or another year for the book to get out, the market will still be present if you've thought through it carefully enough. That's reassuring. Also, because publishing houses and agents in general are always thinking ahead of the market to kind of predict what's going to come. And then the first part of your question, one of the things I want to say is that there's, I know the editors in New York very well. And I know that if I happen upon a book idea that on a personal level will resonate with them, that is key because they represent, they're the first line of defense mm -hmm. against, you know, the barrage of proposals that come in. I have to know that there's a market, but I also have to know that the editors have skin in the game. They're going to really feel something. And so if it's a parenting book, I'm going to send to editors who have three kids who are dealing with education issues as a parent and it's stuff like that. Just like a reader, they're the better editor for it. Okay, my third and final question. I like to add I'm this. I'm doing terribly on the one sentence. No, you're doing great because I think that most listeners, and I'm including myself in that, they like to know more. So okay. yeah. I'm always eager to learn more. But my third and final question I like to ask literary agents in general, and this question is, out of the querying agents, an ideal client who shows up in your inbox, why are you the best literary agent for them? I may not be. That's my one sentence. But you have to figure that out. And I will make the case why I think we're a good fit. I oftentimes tell new clients, I'm not going to make you sign anything. I don't want to lock you in if you don't think it's working. And I also don't know if you're going to come through with the improvements that I think you could be making. And so it's a trust thing. And I also tell people that editors may not want to hear this, but your relationship with your agent is the most important relationship in your publishing life. And editors come and go and imprints are sometimes interchangeable. They're all really good. But, you know, if you have a commercial book, then you're going to have multiple imprints who want your book and they'll all do a very good job publishing. But the one constant, the one person you're going to talk to the most is going to be your agent. And so I may not be the right fit. I may think I can sell, really sell your book well, but there are other great agents out there. And if we're not vibing, think what the other agent are vibing with because they'll do a good job. That's beautiful. And I love your honesty. And you just always bring such an air of professionalism and sophistication to all of the conversations. You just have said it a million times, but you're a wealth of knowledge. And I appreciate everything that you've shared here today. I think that your agency recently changed submission guidelines. Is that correct? Do you we, go now through Query Manager? We use Query Manager. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I thought I saw something that it, you could originally query the agency, but now you're doing query manager. So only, only query yes. through query manager. But I'm correct? also, yeah, it, we're easy to get in touch with and we don't sticklers about that. So okay. I get plenty of submissions in my inbox unsolicited. So 
I'm just saying, like, I'm, I don't mind that. Okay. Great. Do you mind if you don't address me by my name and you copy me with a hundred other agents? And then I won't respond. So that's understandable. Yeah. <laughs> so many people would hear this and think, how does that even happen? It's but like it applying happens. for a job. Like if you were applying for a job, you wouldn't send a mass email out to a hundred employers. You're trying to establish a relationship. That's why I'm always emphasizing there should be a special reason why you're querying a specific agent and there needs to be a specific reason. It shouldn't just be a random choice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, totally. This is common knowledge now, but find books that that agent's worked on, put them in the email that you're writing to the agent on and butter, like stroke their ego. It really mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the best ways to yeah. find a comparable title is to yeah. go to the acknowledgement okay, section. Yep. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, excellent. Well, Howard, thank you again. This is going to be great for listeners and I learned a lot. So I really appreciate everything that you've shared. Good. It was, uh, it was fun. And let me know. I didn't come up with another example, but I'll think about it. If you think about it, I can include it in the I'll show. I'll come notes. back on and we'll <laughs> talk about it. Perfect. Even yeah. better. <laughs> great. Thank you for coming back to listen to another episode of Lit Match. I had a lot of fun talking to Howard. I wish I had multiple hours to talk to him. He just has so many great insights on the market, on publishing, on specific nonfiction books, on how to support clients. I think he could go on and on, and we would just continue to eagerly write down everything that we have to learn from him. If Howard is the dream agent for you, don't hesitate to query him. Again, he is at the Ross Yoon agency and, and he is a literary agent and the principal of Ross Yoon Agency. As always, I so appreciate you being here with me. This podcast has given me the great opportunity to connect with wonderful writers like you who are continually sitting down and committing themselves to a manuscript so that they can reach readers and make a difference in this world. I feel honored to bring you insights and information, and I greatly appreciate your continued support in this endeavor. If you would like to support me, you can do so by writing a review and rating the show, which signals to iTunes that this podcast matters and helps me reach more listeners like you who want to learn more or need help with the literary agent research process or the submission process and want to learn how to grow their writing craft. I'm also always open to recommendations or anything that you would like to see more of on the podcast. You can email me at abigailkperry at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying what you've been hearing on LitMatch, don't forget to sign up for my newsletter on www.abigailkperry.com because I do send out updates and the latest news about any episodes that are coming out on the podcast. And in the future, I will create downloads and other resources that, that can help you along with this literary agent research process and the writing process. No matter where you are, if you're writing a manuscript right now, I am so proud of you. That is such meaningful work, and I continually hope that I can support you along that process. If you're in the query process, I know that it can be tough, but please do persevere. You never know how many readers you will touch with your book or how impactfully you will touch even a single reader. So buckle down with continued work resiliency and perseverance, you can find the best literary agent and advocate for your writing career. Until then, happy writing, happy querying. I cannot wait to hear when you sign with your dream literary agent and celebrate your book when it comes out. <laughs>